This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Today's podcast is a chat with business journalist, New York Times columnist, and co-founder of Recode, Kara Swisher. This conversation took place on May 29th, and in the chat, we talk about Los Angeles having a good mayor in terms of how Eric Garcetti responded to the coronavirus. Of course, in the time since May 29th, we have seen mayors across the U.S. Uh, respond sometimes in very appropriate and helpful ways and sometimes really lacking on the topic of Black Lives Matter and um, police violence as it relates to specifically Black people, black, the Black community. So I just wanted to mention that this conversation would not have played out uh, the way that it did May 29th today. And some of that is uh, what Black people are, are mentioning right now is that it's easy, you know, it would have been easy for me on May 29th to say, yeah, I have a good mayor. And my evolving understanding, many white people's evolving understanding of what it means to live in cities and be over-policed is part of what Black folks have been calling for and part of what white folks are just showing up for. So that is in this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still So I always have guests introduce themselves. Could you okay. introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Kara Swish. I'm a journalist uh, and I write about technology. Yes, and I also can't believe that I'm getting an hour of your time right now <laughs> yeah. because it seems like at this exact moment or at least over the last week, um, things in your life must be pretty bonkers well, I, right I'm now. Surprised, you know, I surprised the reaction. We had written, I had written this column for the New York Times on Tuesday, and I was, I, I took up the case of a man uh, whose wife was, was died in really terrible circumstances that late, later became a conspiracy theory around uh, then Representative Joe Scarborough. And so I, every President Trump was tweeting about this, and for I think I've written about ten columns about President Trump and Twitter and the difficulties of dealing with him. And this, to me, was sort of a bridge too far. Well, there's so many bridges. There's we're, we're way beyond bridges too far. <laughs> it's bridges we, just bridges leading to bridges. As bridges, far as you can see. and then in the middle of it, a new bridge, <laughs> another yes. bridge to a bridge, and, and it's a bridge over a bridge. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I just was like, this is enough. This is ridiculous. But I didn't want to focus on Joe Scarborough because. But, you know, he's he's involved in political wrangling with the president and he has a TV show and his wife got involved. And I thought Mika Brzezinski, who's also on the show, and I thought people don't understand the real pain of this. And so I got a hold of a letter that the the widower of um, uh, of this woman, Lori Klesudis, uh, had written to Jack Dorsey that I thought was the most beautiful letter. Um, you know, and he represented so many people who have these issues with the president on Twitter. It wasn't, it's not more important than other people's problems, but it was beautifully rendered. And so I, I uh, published it with a, uh, I published it talking, I published the whole letter. And then I talked about this issue of what are you going to do about, what are you going to do about this man? He, this is not newsworthy. This is not, uh, you know, your, your rules don't work here because he's continually abusing them and pushing the line. And in this case, there's nothing newsworthy here and it's false. 
And so I started that off and I didn't think anything would happen because I've written eight of them, like talking about various different issues. Um, and mostly what I ask is, what are you going to do? I'd like you to think about it. I'd like you to do something. I don't know what to do. Here's the various things people think. And then in the afternoon, you know, the story went went wide, but then in the afternoon, everyone's, you know, usual disgust. Now this time we're going to get him. You know what I mean? This, this is it. Um, so I thought that's where it was going to end up. And then Twitter decided to do something that was surprising after it was published, which was start to monitor his tweets and start to fact check his tweets, which was one of the things I said they were thinking of doing in general across the entire um, ent- entirety of Twitter. And so when that happened, and it wasn't the Klesuda's tweet, it was another tweet about mail-in ballots. Um, it was it, Then it's taken off since there. And now with, uh, with what's going on in Minnesota, they've now uh, started to tag his other tweets, which means they're they're going to start monitoring President Trump as he should be when he's lying and making false or uh, violence-inducing statements. Yes, I just want to mark for our listeners that we're recording this on uh, May 29th, and so this is very uh, topically relevant. And yeah, and I'm especially because that uh, tweet about um, Minnesota is from this this morning. This morning, yes, he tweeted um, that uh, he tweeted a famous quote from a very racist sheriff in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, which who was saying, "I'm going to be." you know, I'm going to beat the shit out of people. Uh, and so what? Police brutality. So what? I'm good. I'm good with it. And so the combination of the historical, you know, he thought he was tricking everyone. Everyone knows that. Anyone who has any, you know, passing knowledge of the civil rights movement knows of that horrible sentence. So he used that. And then he, they, they put, uh, they left it up. They're not censoring him. That's the big thing. They left it up, but they covered it with a, with a, with a. There's like a click cover. The click through. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and they're explaining why they did it. And then the White House puts it up on the official White House page. So the policy of the White House, the government of the United States, is to kill black people. It's just, it's like, there's no other, there's no other way you can go with it because that's what the quote was originally about. And so, and it's just, it was just amazing that the, then he then put it up. And I, I think I made a joke. I mean, and then of course, Twitter blocked that, didn't block it, but they covered it. Um, and had the same thing. I'm like, where is he going to put it on Melania's Twitter? What is he going to go like use Ivanka's? Like, yeah, I mean, probably. I, I don't know, but it was like insane that the federal. You know, he can stick to his own personal ones and get blocked, but he's now using government. Um, he's using the government to to propagate, which is it, just absolutely clear racist sen- sentiments. Right. I think that that's the. You know, it's, it's really it's really difficult to, especially as you know, as a white as a white person, it is really difficult to, I find right now, um, speak specifically on Twitter to an audience of other white people. Yeah, you know, because I don't have to explain to black folks what's happening. You know, right. but to white people, um, the escalation of and how direct the sentiments are, mm-hmm. just how direct the sentiments are. I think that, you know, it's, it's just really interesting to think about your role <laughs> as a technology reporter, right. you know, and, and that now you are going to be important in 
you know, participating in the civil rights movement. Like that's, well, that's you know, it because has, of how he has used Twitter. Yeah, like that's just, think, it's a very interesting. I think technology is now everything for us. Like look through this mm-hmm. pandemic, it's become, you know, whether you're talking about facial recognition, which is all about civil rights with privacy, data collection, uh, your right to your data, all these issues uh, that technology, for years I've been writing about the, the intersection of technology with everything, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, and suddenly we're watching everything and there's no more movie theaters or Amazon's prevailing and there's no more Main Street, although that had been happening for a long time pre-Amazon. Um, so everything tech touches has societal implications. And it's like the television or radio or the telegraph. They, they're not just technologies. They are societal changers. The car is a technology. It changed our country drastically by allowing people to leave small towns and go somewhere else. You know, if you, every technology has societal implications, whether it's the cotton gin, whether it's the, you know, manufacturing, um, the printing press. So that's how I look at it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think it's also, you know, one thing I'm thinking about is, um, if he is defeated for re-election, mm-hmm. that Twitter could become an interesting space in a different way. Because right now, the White House and the seat of political power in this country is sort of co-signing what he's saying on his personal account. Yeah. If he doesn't win re-election, mm-hmm. that could be a place that folks go to, like it could, it could, it could get more extreme. I think it probably would get more extreme and could be a place that folks go to, to, you know, gather their political views that are in opposition to the White House. Like he, he actually kind of runs his White House like he's in opposition with the White House. Yes, he is. But if there was, but if there was somebody else in the White House, I'm very, it's just something I think about a lot. I think we have to think about what happens. You know, I, I wrote a column a couple I mean, last year, uh, when he start when he was talking about insurrection, do you remember there was a tweet that was really on the edge? And today, Twitter would cover it, would probably do something about it because it really was suggesting violence. Um, yes, very clearly. Yes, um, and uh, I wrote a column saying, "Look, this this is ridiculous. This is like," and I said, "Okay, fine. If you want to deem him newsworthy right now that he's the president, let me put out a scenario for you. No, November fourth, or it's third. Third is the election. Um, November fourth." He tweets, I have been, the election's been stolen from me. Everybody get your gun and get me back in the White House. What if he did that? Like, he could. Now I'm like, sure. I, I don't even bother. Doing. What would Twitter do? And that's the question I posed to Twitter. I'm like, what would you do that day? You, you facilitated violence. You have, by not putting these people, uh, controlling these people long ago. Now, I think it goes back a long way because of the way, you know, not just Twitter, but Facebook and YouTube and all the others. They never, they've been so hands-off. They've allowed humanity to run wild, like the purge, almost continually, and then put on rules that were so haphazard. Like, there's rules there. By the way, whatever Mark Zuckerberg says, they fact-check people too. They have a huge fact-checking. It's such such enormous... um, his arbiter of the truth bullshit is not true. They do. They do it all the time. They, they make decisions every day. And so they sort of do it haphazardly and not completely, and then they back away from it. And so nobody knows what, and therefore people like Donald Trump and previously Alex Jones can thrive uh, right. and, and take advantage of the system and game it. And that's, what, that's what's happening. And let me just say, on the other hand, you have wonderful creativity. I mean, look at this pandemic, all this comedy online, 
uh, all these people being funny, people putting up, there's so much exciting creative activity on there. You can begin to glimpse how good it could be when used properly. You know what I mean? When used well, right. I guess, not properly well. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a financial incentive to for the for companies to keep yes um, heightened heightened Anchor. material yes. on there because that's the type of stuff that fuels people staying online longer and coming back and oh there's you know, like study staying after on the study site. yeah there's study I mean the, the Wall Street Journal story this week talked about these studies that Facebook does which absolutely prove that they create polarization. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that polarization didn't exist before, but they they make it worse. They amplify it. They weaponize it. Um, and the very first column I did for the New York Times, I talked about the weaponization and amplification of stuff. It's not the same as a billboard. It's not the same as an ad on a TV. It's amplified a zillion, 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 zillion times. And so, and the second part that they don't pay attention to is that um, everyone talks about, oh, what, how did this happen? They were built this way. These systems are built for, it's like asking why liquor makes you drunk. The, <laughs> guess why? Because it's built that way. Right. Um, and so it's built It's built for virality, which is a terrible word right now. I'm writing about that next week. Um, it's built for um, growth, fast growth above all, and it's built for speed. And so everyone's like, how did we get to Donald Trump? I'm like, it was built for him. It was built for someone like him to emerge. And so whenever Silicon Valley goes, oh, I can't believe this happened, they know, they knew, they know, and if they didn't know, they're really not doing their homework on their own data that shows that this is, this is engagement leads to enragement and enragement leads to engagement. And so it goes, it's an, they have to re-architect the whole thing if they really, just the way you re-architected cigarettes or uh, anything that is addictive and dangerous for you. Well, I want to start with your going back a little bit with your history and you know mm-hmm. how you are so well versed in this and and everything mm-hmm. you're saying I think um, is really important right now. But where where are you from? Uh, from the, the tri-state area, <laughs> you know, New York. Uh, I was born in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and uh, uh, moved to New Jersey, New York first. My dad died when I was five uh, there. He was a doctor in the Navy. Um, and then, uh, we moved after he died to New Jersey and I grew up in New Jersey till through high school, uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, and then went to Georgetown. I was going to be in the foreign service. Uh, I wanted to be a spy in the CIA. I really did. I wanted to join the military actually also. Um, and I could not because of don't ask, don't tell. And cause I tell. So it was really hard. Yeah. I mean, t- if tell they me, ask, me. I tell. Talk to um, me more about that. I, I really believe in military service. I do. My dad, I have a lot of family in it. And I thought it was really important. I think it's an important thing. Um, if done correctly, again, like a lot of things, um, it's not perfect by any stretch. Neither is most of society. But um, but I really wanted to join, serve in some way. CIA was one of the ways I was going to do it. I went, did foreign service. I wanted to be an analyst. Um, I, wanted, I, I would have been a military intelligence, something like that. And I was gay and you couldn't do it. Even joining the CIA was difficult because you there was there was this whole sort of panic about gay people and blackmail. Of course, I was out, so it was kind of hard. Even back then, I'm pretty old. Um, so it's <laughs> when, uh, when you say you were out, um, like what is that? What college. did that look like at the time? Terrible. You know? It was terrible. You know, just Larry Kramer just died, so it brought back a yeah. lot of memories. You know, I was I, I was young during the whole AIDS crisis. Um, and it was, I remember at the time, um, you know, enough is what I, one thing Larry, the gift Larry Kramer gave us, 
there's a lot of controversy around how difficult he is and this and loud and angry. And I'm like, his anger was so critically important to, you know, there were a lot of other gay people at the time who were like, calm, let's not, let's not upset the straight people. Let's not like, let's just be like, look good. Let's not be bad. And he was, he was sort of this voice of just pure unadulterated anger. Like, and so was, so was, um, uh, act up. And I, I remember that push pull at the time between sort of the, the, the establishment gays. I don't know. I wasn't part sure. of either of the groups, but um, I remember thinking ACT UP was absolutely right in being angry. And so I was angry during the AIDS crisis. I started to get really angry. And, uh, but I couldn't join, that I couldn't join the military, that I couldn't do these things. And by the way, that was perpetrated by Bill Clinton. So thanks, Bill, you were, for that. You were in D.C. at the time? Yeah, I went to Georgetown. I went yeah, to Georgetown right. University. And the, But you, did you stay after graduating? I did. I did. I worked for the Washington Post. Uh, at different, I did different jobs, but I had hoped to, and I went to Columbia uh, Journalism School, but I, 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 the idea of going into the CIA at the time or mm-hmm. going without being closeted or going into the military without being closeted was not something I could do. I, thought yeah, was, I, mean, I that, didn't think it was correct either. That strikes me as very interesting also because I don't know if I've actually spoken to, for this podcast, I don't know that I've spoken to anybody who lived in D.C. at that time. Because mm-hmm. I think of a lot of people as living in New York and sort of some of what you're talking about, you know, I think folks were, there. there's like the very active act up type person. There's the person who's like mm-hmm. maybe passing and they're having some sort of Wall Street existence, you yeah. know. But DC seems specifically interesting to me because I'm just imagining there would be really no way, because of, you know, DC's a uh, uh, company town, but the company is mm-hmm. politics. And uh, right. I can't really imagine there would be an out gay scene. There like, was. What did it, what did it look like? There was. What were, what did, what was, were folks doing? Yeah, you, know, you know, just the gay things. They were on 17th Street at the time. You know, it wasn't like San Francisco or other places, but there was a pretty active gay scene. Um, you know, uh, I think it was, people were out. I was out for most of my 20s, you know, for most of my early 20s, but it was hard. I have to say, I had difficult with my family. This was, people, you know, today's, uh, I don't want to sound like I don't like, oh, you people don't know what it was like, but it was terrible to be in the closet. It was terrible to worry about threats. It was terrible uh, to have to, you know, come out to every single person. And, you know, it it, it takes its psychic toll. And in many people's cases, uh, physical toll for people. Not, I, I didn't, I didn't ever feel in any danger necessarily, but it certainly was ever present. And so, um, you know, there was a pretty, like, as in most cities, there were always, there's always an active gay scene, um, even back then. But it was just beginning because of AIDS. I think everybody, you know, I worked, I, 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 um, I did the AIDS quilt when they were, when they put it on the mall. I don't know if you remember that. They put the whole thing on the mall right in front of the Capitol building. And every yes. day people had to go and fold it up. And I was one of the folders. In oh, the wow. morning, they unfolded it because of the dew. They couldn't get it on the these things. I don't know where that quilt is now, actually. Um, but it was enormous. It was so, it was such a beautiful uh, articulation of the death, um, uh, what had happened, the tragedy, what had happened. And so... Um, I was one of the folders. You had to do this whole, it was quite lovely in terms of, uh, it was almost military how they did it. You know, you threw it up and you pulled it down and then you you did this sort of very, nobody wanted to walk on these because they were graves essentially. And so everybody folded it every night. And so I was one of the volunteers that did that. And I remember seeing the whole thing laid out. It went on, it went on and on it visually. You can go back and look at the pictures of it. It was it was one of those moments you're like, this is fucking ridiculous that we're at, we're not out. 
this is fucking ridiculous that we're putting up with this. This is ridiculous that we're going along with it. Um, and it sort of made me angry in a really effective way. Um, and then the second thing to happen was Angels in America, Tony Kushner's uh, play. I, I wrote about theater for the Washington Post when I was here. And I went to see it seven times. It's a long play. <laughs> it's a two-part Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I went to see it. It was such an important play because it really was. It had all, it was articulating all those issues around AIDS and about Roy Cohen, who, of course, as it turns out, was Trump's mentor to Donald mentor. Trump. Yeah. I know. I mean, it really does. The circle eats itself, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, so sh- so it was a very important time to start to be angry in the appro- in the right way, like angry and, and effective. Um, I, I don't mind anger for just anger's sake. That's that's fine too. But it really started to really ar- to articulate for a lot of people why we couldn't, you know, we couldn't live silent lives anymore, which is a line from that play. We're not going to be silent. And I, I remember it changed with my family, with everything else. I was like, no. Basta. My family's Italian. I was like, basta. It's over. My family's Italian too. Yeah, basta. My, my family's Italian and Catholic. And, yeah. Same. You know, I'm a med- I also don't know. Georgetown, was that a. Oh, well, was that, that a, was awful. Because that that's a whole awful. other thing. Well, I went to I Boston was, College and oh, I went to Boston College thing. the. Jesuits. Yep. And I went to Boston College the last year that mm-hmm. sexual, I graduated the last year that sexual orientation was not part of their non discrimination right. policy. Georgetown so, was terrible. Georgetown yeah, was, had. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. And the priests were all gay. So, you know, and diddling yeah. some of the students. What was, was the just, vibe um, at Georgetown? It was terrible. There was a lawsuit. Uh, George, gay people of Georgetown University started a group. I couldn't go. I was so scared. You know what I mean? And so they had this group and they all they wanted was the $40 in the room, you know, that that, that any group has. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they wouldn't give it to them. And it became a lawsuit when I was there. It was terrible. Um, that they were just wouldn't give them the the, the Catholic Church or yeah. the people who ran Georgia wouldn't give them acknowledgement or the money that every other group got, and so it was a it was a to be at a university which was fighting gay people was terrible, and at the same time, so much of an underground gay activity among the priests it just was. Um, I wrote about it qu- quite a lot about uh, uh, GPGU, uh, and then there was a there was a you know a protest by SPGU straight people of Georgia. Good to have a group if you want that group, but you know one of those. And then at the same time, Terry Dolan was doing um, that right wing. What's his name? Oh, he's terrible. It was a, a series of very right. It was the beginning of sort of the right wing. Um, and I'm blanking on that group, but it was, it started at Georgetown. It was, and also Terry Dolan was closeted from what I understand. So, and died, died, uh, terribly, I think. And, uh, I just, it was, there was so much, um, you know, hatred towards gay people at Georgetown. And one of the, I had a terror, I, when I left there, I was like, I'm not giving the money. I'm not coming back. There was so much closeted. There was so much uh, aggression towards gay people, so much shame. Um, years later, Jack DeJoy, who's now the president, asked me to come and speak. I said, I'm not setting foot on that campus. Like you, And what they had done, he said, let me tell you what we've done. They put in, you know, a gay students group. They allowed, they had an advisor, all kinds of stuff they did. They were, they were repairing what had happened there. That said, they were way behind. I was like, this is like table stakes for Harvard. Harvard is like 26 right. of these kind of things or whatever, but uh, comparable universities. But they were trying very hard. And so I said, I will, he said, I'd like you to come back and give this speech. This, this, it's, a, it's a speech to students and alumni. A lot of people, I forget, it was like a thousand people. And I said, and you're one of our prominent, you know, uh, alumni. And I said, I, I hate your school. I hated it. I hated what you did to gay people. And I said, if I can say what you did, I will come. I will tell you, I will tell the audience the story of what it was like to be here. And I did. He let me do it. 
And I said, this was the most closeted, hateful, <laughs> shameful place ever. I'm happy that Jack is doing this, but, you know, it was an interesting thing because, um, I don't know if you know this, but Paul Pelosi, uh, I think Nancy Pelosi went, Paul Pelosi went to Georgetown, his, uh, Nancy's husband, uh, the speaker's husband, I shouldn't call her Nancy. Um, and uh, he was there and he was like, go Kara, go, you know what I mean? It was like, and it was great because I was like, here's, and I, and now I do things for Georgetown now. They, I think they're, they've tried really hard to uh, mend, mend things, but it was really an interesting, it was an interesting speech. And I have to say, I got, nobody was angry about it. And the student paper covered it. And uh, it was, it was, it was nice for it to change. It's still not perfect, that university. They've still got all the fucked upness that the Catholic church enjoys to perpetrate on taunt of people. But um, yeah, but there's that. They've got some other issues they have to deal with. You know, I'm, I'm smiling my head off over here because, you know, you and I have had, I had such a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know what year you graduated from college. 1984. But I will, 1984. So I, graduated in two, I graduated in 2004. And so, so I just say that because, yeah. you know, I think oftentimes I hear people talk about how far we've come. And mm-hmm. I think, and it, you know, and I do talk about this on the podcast, like for me, the Catholic Church um, mixing itself in with schooling is such mm-hmm. a brilliant way to indoctrinate young minds. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, I grew up um, super Catholic and then I realized I was queer at BC and the spotlight papers were happening in, mm-hmm. or the spotlight stories oh, were yeah. happening in the Boston Globe at the time oh, yeah. while I was an undergrad. And the they would not allow a gay group or even an allied group on campus. You know, there what? was like a group really? of people that wanted to be like an allied in group. That, that year? At, in that okay. year. Um, and I actually graduated the same week that Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex oh, marriage. Wow. So it all happened one in one week. And um, anyway, afterwards they, they called me for money and I said, you know, like to some, to some <laughs> undergrad, to some yeah, like yeah, undergrad, yeah. Oh, I damn. said, um, you know, I'll donate when, the school apologizes and mm-hmm. must have gotten put on some like do not call list because they didn't yeah. call me for years. But just last month, they asked me to like be a you part should. of their alumni magazine. You should and talk I, about it. I said, I will yeah. be a part of the alumni magazine if you print that like I had a terrible experience here. Right. And this, you know, I'm talking to this like reporter who's like, mm-hmm. I just am. I don't even, I'm, you know, I'm 22 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she called her editor and they did print it. Oh, good. Um, good. Which is enormously healing for me. Yeah, it is. And, it is. you know, so I'm trying to work on that path to, my former thesis advisor actually is teaching a class on forgiveness mm-hmm. this summer. Yeah. And I got on the phone with him and uh, I think I'm going to take that class. Because oh, for me, you know, it was so painful and I, I don't want to carry that around for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to do what, what you're talking about, Yeah. you know, for, not just for the university and the, the students who still go there, like not wanting to like yeah. just abandon them to their fates, but also for myself, you yeah. know, it's yeah. those, those really painful places. Yeah. They don't just, yeah. those wounds I'm, just don't cauterize on their own. I you guess. have to do I'm some not a big forgiver work. sometimes of some things. <laughs> I'm a little well, old. We don't have you. to forgive. No. no. But I, I maybe know. forgive, but do not forget. That is the. You know, oh, never. Who never. would forget? Yeah. They always say, <laughs> forget. I'm like, no, I'm not sure I'm going to do either of those things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there is, a, there is a real value in anger. And I think, especially right now, I think some of the stuff that's happening in Minnesota 
you know, there's always this, these people that are like, well, that's injustice, but they shouldn't like trash target. I'm like, why are those even on the same scale? Like, let's get to Absolutely. the injustice part that leads to them trashing the target, which if that's the least of our damage for what has happened is really quite, you know, it's really, I always love that, but I've been watching the news today and it's like, you know, this is, this is people, this many black people been killed on video, you know, but They've ruined this pizza joint and this poor guy who works there. And I'm like, I feel bad for that guy, but seriously, are you kidding me? Like, you know, so I think forgiveness is is fine. I just think you can't let people off the hook. And that's my whole career is not letting people off the hook. That's yeah. all I do for a living. I, I hear you. I, I think for me, it's, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how much anger is useful, like you said, as a motivator and how much anger just hurts me, yeah. you know? So that's the side, that's the part of it that I am curious about healing, not somebody else's right shit like they can deal with their own stuff but oh, more so just being tough on people like i my mom and i have been very tough on her you know i have children so i i don't even tolerate it but even when i was younger uh when she would buy better presents for my brother's uh girlfriends mm. i'd be like you need to take them all back they're not <laughs> equal they're not equal presents you need to do equal presents and 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 she was sometimes when she'd do something nice that was sort of not pro gay but just decent She's like, see, I can be nice. I'm like, uh, you don't get praise for doing the normal thing. Like, sorry, no praise. And she's like, that's not very nice. I said, I don't negotiate with terrorists, so it's fine. I hear what you're saying. You are also a very successful yeah. person, and you mm-hmm. and you have run in some like I hang out with pretty important people. circles. Yeah. yeah and so my question is if you're a queer person who has who has this anger and this like sense of justice. Yeah. I think many of our list of my listeners would probably wonder how you get to be in those circles. Because I think mm-hmm. anytime you're a marginalized person, it's related to what you were just talking about about Target. Anytime you're a marginalized person, the thing that people tell you is like chill out so that you can be part of the bigger no. circles. So what is your experience? I with say this? no. I think you shouldn't do that at all. Like I think that in fact, Tell me. Tell me how. I have I have an idea of writing a book called No is a complete sentence. You know what I mean? Like you can actually you know, I, I feel like people do not articulate what they want very clearly. I think they tend to compromise themselves and compromise, you know, everyone's like, what's your secret to interviews? I'm a really good interviewer. I do a lot of big interviews. I'm like, I ask what is in my head. I don't like worry if they're going to like me next. I don't worry if if I'm going to get in again. I don't worry at all. And it seems the more you I do that, the more successful I am, which is really interesting. So I'll ask the hard, harder questions. I don't care if I talk to them again, but I end up talking to them again. You know what I mean? Because I think, to my mind, people, really smart people like smart questions. They like people that don't hold back. They like people that are genuine. And so what I tend to do is say my mind. And it, it I, I'm not rude. There's a very difference between being rude and being like, no, you can't do that or you, you mustn't do that. And I think every time in my life where I've said no, it's always worked out. And I think a lot of people don't like using, you know, yes is a good word too. Yes, I'll do that. I'll go, you know, I'll try new experiences, stuff like that. But I don't think, especially women don't use the word no enough. Like, no, you know, like when I, when I'm just thinking about salary stuff, um, anytime I've negotiated for salary stuff, for example, um, 
you have to know your, your leverage, of course, you know, you have to know, you have to be able to walk. Uh, but I was negotiating with someone and they're like, come on, just take a little less and then we'll go out and be friends. I go, I'm not your fucking friend. Give me the money. Like, and they were like, oh, I said, why would you imagine we're friends? I work here, right? We're not, I'm not your friend. I don't want to get along with you. I would really like the money. That's what I want, you know? And, and then we could be friends if you'd like to be, that's fine. And has there been want. a moment that this hasn't worked? No. This like overall strategy? No. This works for you. This has yes. historically always worked for you. Always works. Always works. It's really interesting because, you know, I think I have a level of charm. I think that I use when I do interviews and things like that. And I, I'm also can be very funny. Like when I, I'm not like you funny, but, um, but, uh, but I'm pretty funny in interviews. People are surprised. And so one of the things that I, I, I always feel you have to be really prepared. You got to know your stuff. Uh, and then you have to ask the really the question everybody wants to know or the, what's on your brain. But I tend not to be um, I tend not to be rude. I tend to be forthright. You know what I mean? There's a difference between the two, and I tend not to be uh, I, I tend to be tough and fair, but not snarky and cheap shots. You know what I mean? There's a there's a big difference, and some people don't toe that line very easily. So I think it doesn't really, it hasn't so far so good in terms, and I'm pretty old um, in saying, um, uh, saying those things. And I think the same thing has happened like when I, when I had, I got married way earlier than other people did the gay marriage thing. Although um, I used to always joke that only um, gay people wanted to get married and go into the military. Uh, But, uh, but they, I, I did the gay thing really early and everyone's like, you can't do that. I'm like, yes, I can. I'm going to do it. Why is that? Or, or I had kids a lot earlier than other people. I just had another baby. I had a lot of people like, you're old. Why? You can't have a baby. I'm like, yeah, I can. Fuck you. Like, I, that's what I want. Um, and so I think, I think a, com- a judicious combination of yes and no is critically important to success in life. That's a long way of putting it. I mean, I, I, I hear everything you're saying and I also think about the moment, like the actual week in the U.S. in which we're speaking and how, you know, your education, whiteness, how Mm -hmm. all of that plays into what you're talking about. And when you talk to, because I I know you, oh, you're, you know, you're interfacing with people all the time. I am clear that some people can't do that. Like, absolutely. So what would you say to those people? Like, I just feel like you're such a successful person. I, I, I have gotta advantages be something other people do not have. I mean, I have, I have less advantages than a white guy, less, mm-hmm. more advantages than a, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. you can stack rank these things very easily. Like I have more advantages because I'm educated. I have more advantages because I, I, I have a, a successful career and things like that. I know I can call people. I know I've created a network over the years. I think the difficulty, I can't even underscore, like the reason why I can be like that is because I think about people like a, a young girl in Syria or someone in Minnesota that's caught, you know, with policing that is brutal, they don't have choices that I have. And so when I think about my choices, I'm like, they don't, they don't actually have choices. I actually have choices. And that's what I'm talking about when I make decisions. My decisions, everyone in, in that, are, that have relatively good lives in the United States have a lot more choices than they think. They just for some reason, they don't think if you, especially if you contrast them to people who don't like that. Um, when you're in a situation, I don't, even, I don't even, I can't even begin to speak for people who live in those neighborhoods of Minnesota. I think the, um, or anywhere, it's not just Minnesota, it's everywhere. Um, 
I think one is to have allies like me and others speak out. Obviously, that's one thing, but that's not going to solve the problem. I think elections, voting, organizing, the basic things that, you know, people like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and many others talk about is what's critical, is to seize power and hold it and hold the power um, to allow some change and be part of knowledge that it isn't going to happen as quickly as you want to. And it isn't you know, when you look at what's happening in Minnesota and you think about the civil rights here and all that those people sacrifice, it doesn't feel like you've made much progress, right? Uh, or the progress has gone underground. Or when you see, we thought that their white supremacy was over, but it's not, right? It's not, it's, it's, it sort of rears its ugly head and now it's living in the White House. Um, it can be disheartening. Um, so I don't quite know what to say, except that it is disheartening and you still have to, get up and try to change it. Um, I don't know any other way except moving forward and pushing, you know, again, I'll quote Angels in America, the world always spins forward. I think it happened with gay rights, right? It happened, you know, when I was young, you couldn't get married, you couldn't have children, and then you could. Um, And that changed really quickly. And having lived through when you couldn't and when you were closeted to today, I can't even believe that we were, that was happening back then. So I have seen progress, at least in gay rights, for sure. That's my life. Um, so I do believe that change, you know, can absolutely happen. It's just, you know, but it's not an easy transition. And around racial issues in this country, uh, it's the stain of our country. It's the, it's the continuing stain of this country and the continuing agony of this country is the, the race relations and income inequality. And they go... They don't necessarily go hand in hand, but right now with all the work, I cover wealthy people, the wealthiest people on planet Earth mm-hmm. in, the, in the history of the Earth. And one of the things I always talk about is that they have to realize the, that the away from their tech stuff and the things they invent, their, their biggest challenge is income inequality um, and, and the, the, the way they're creating gig jobs. Now, in the pandemic, people don't have health care. People don't have benefits. People don't, it's like, it shows you what happens when we create these economies where we have Uber drivers that have nothing but the next ride, right? Um, and so every, the people, I, I can write about those issues because they the people that are inventing the things I write about have created the situations or helped been part of creating the situations that we now find ourselves in around income equality, jobs, Healthcare, they're all systemically over, you know, linked together. Do you, do you have a, an I, I mean, this is a, this is, right. t- no, no, nobody's going to be held accountable for, uh, but, but I feel like, um, so I'm walking down the street in my neighborhood and I just saw the first restaurant that mm-hmm. is like fully for sale. So mm-hmm. many places haven't even opened yet to, you know, put their like, actually, we're done now, mm-hmm. signs out. And I'm very curious about what will happen next. And I'm, just They're done. Wondering. A lot is done. People yeah. Don't so, you know, because of your insight into technology, gig jobs, things like that, do you have a, just like a projection, an idea of what you think things Small will look like in the next gonna year? Small businesses are going to be wiped out. Small businesses are going to be wiped out. And the bigger, the big companies are going to get bigger. We've talked about that. This has accelerated right. existing trends, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's restaurants uh, and deli- versus delivery, like Uber Eats versus restaurants, whether it's commerce versus Amazon, whether it's media versus Google and Facebook, 
the, the bigger are going to get bigger. They're never going to be stronger than they are. They're going to suck up every little bit of oxygen in terms of advertising, in terms of recovery. And they have enormous piles of cash to rest on until the things get better. And when things get better, as inevitably they do, they're going to win everything. Meanwhile, small businesses that don't can't avail themselves to VC funding or things like that, you know, most businesses have only a couple months of money, right. you know, cushion. So that's that. That's done. And I'm, so it'll have it, iterations through commercial real estate, office real estate, um, insurance. It just go. It iterates throughout the economy, which means it'll start affecting everybody. And so, if you're a small business, you're you are facing a really difficult uh, tra- transition right now, if you survive at all. I mean, it makes sense to me that, yeah, of course, something like a mom and pop shop, you know, and then now everything is a Walmart. Like I can, I, I can <laughs> see that projection and I can see it in our, in our past anyway. But the, I think about some place like a gym or a movie theater or a barber, like a specific service mm-hmm. provider. Do you have any thoughts about what will happen for folks who do that sort of work? Well, because, they'll come back. People need them, right? But there's th- things will change. Now a lot of people are used to working at home, right? Mm-hmm. That's good. Like all the tech companies are now working at home. We're good. What does that mean for commercial real estate in San Francisco? Not good. And then what does it mean for the deli on the corner? What does it mean for the hair cutter on the corner? What does it mean for the dry cleaner? What is it? You know, it starts to mean things as people do that. And so we've started that trend. The work from home trend is something that will, now there'll be more businesses related to it, but not these businesses. That means those people get displaced into something else. Um, you know, more delivery people. That means more gig workers. That means less people with health care. That means, you know what I mean? You can just, you yeah. can iterate around these things or uh, more automation because we have to virus proof our, our distribution chains. That means more automation, more AI, more uh, robots. Well, that means fewer jobs. What do, where do those people go? It's not unlike uh, what happened when the manufacturing revolution happened. It, it, people were on farms. Most people worked on a farm in this country, and then they didn't. You know what I mean? And everyone acts like, oh, that worked out well because there were more jobs. Well, sure, but the economic dislocation, the economic, the societal uh, dysfunction during that time was vast. And so that's exactly what we're going through, which has been accelerated by this pandemic. So I I think, I don't think people realize how substantive, like, because of existing trends toward automation, AI, robotics, self-driving, it's going to accelerate in a way that I don't think changes happened this much since the, the manufacturing revolution, the industrial revolution. No, I would agree with you that I don't think I don't think that people realize that this is what's going to happen because I also don't think people realize what's currently happening. You know, the idea, was. the idea of well, and. Like not having a central news source, a reliable news source, a reliable right. government, a, a reliable federal government that's imparting truth. I mean, I have even, you know, I live in Los Angeles. The difficulty that I have had trying to figure out what the regulations are in my own city, you know, I, I know so many people feel that way. Mm-hmm. And it's in my own county. And then, yeah. And I even think I have a governor who's been doing an amazing job. You have a job. good governor. You have a good. You have a good you, mayor too. You know. Yeah. yeah. So so that's what it's like in this yeah. system. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and I have access. I have all the technology. You know, mm-hmm. in the world to try to figure things out. But it's so opaque right now that I think it. It's just. I think it's really confusing. It also has the layer of the fact that this. There's not. This is going to be a no vaccine situation for a long time. Yes. Um, think about it. I don't want to compare it to AIDS because AIDS is one of the greatest tragedies of my of of, of 
of, in my lifetime, one of them for in terms of who the people it took and how um, how how devastating it was. But this is everybody, like, and that's what people don't get is that this is this is a this is a society that's going to have to cope with a very different way to operate until either it herds itself out you know, with herd immunity or we get the vaccine. And both those things are quite far down the road. And so yes. uh, I think what's really sad about this country compared to many other countries, now vaccines are what they are. They they replicate, that's what they do. That's their job. Um, and so they're only doing their job, right? They're only doing what they were meant to, they were designed to do by whoever designs things, I guess God or whatever. Um, and uh and, and and the reaction to it is very different. And in our country, you've decided uh, deaths are okay. We're okay with that, with certain with a certain level of death, and that's very in keeping with Brand USA, because Absolutely. that's the same thing. Uh, that's the same thing we do around guns. Like, yeah, people die, but we're good with it. Same thing here. Yeah, people die, but you know what? I'd like to swim in Lake of the Ozarks and drink, you know, a beer. Okay, you know and give someone possibly a, a virus. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it has implications for um, my whole field that are mm-hmm. really interesting. Oh, yeah. Because, what are you doing? You, have, you well, can't travel? Yeah, I can't travel, and I and live performance, I think, is... <laughs> yeah. That's not going to be where people... Well, it might be where some people, you know, flood back into theaters, but... Do you want I, to? I'm not going to be the person that does that. And right. so I think, you know, it's going to mean a big pivot in terms of what I do for a living. And yeah. I also am in a privileged position where like, I, I have some options about what mm-hmm. that might look like, yeah. but it is wild to think about, Oh, this whole field won't exist for a while. And I don't think I'm the only yeah. field where that's true, but yeah. people have trained and it's just, Nope, that's not a job right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's a pretty interesting yeah. development. I've never, I've never experienced that yeah. uh, before in my life. I, I also am, Curious because, so, you know, earlier in this conversation, you, you're talking about Nancy Pelosi. You're, you're like, Nancy, you know, I'm oh, aware of the... I'm sorry. No, please. She's my congresswoman. She's my congresswoman. That's not where Francisco. I'm going with this. Okay. Uh, but she is my congresswoman, so I'm just saying. So I can well, talk to her. Everyone in the, everyone in the her constituency can talk to her. Thank you. <laughs> I am imagining from that, mm-hmm. just from that one moment, that... You know, your Rolodex of people, if yeah. people still use a Rolodex, your contacts on your iPhone are pretty extensive. I'm yes. curious, do you know the president? Is he this somebody one? that, yeah. I've met him, but no. I know a lot of people around him, for sure. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I, I did interview President Obama and know him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know a lot of pretty big political figures on both sides of the aisle, actually. Um, I try to engage with uh, with a bunch of them. I was I was I'm hoping to interview Josh Hawley this week, for example, around because he's a big uh, on a he's a big proponent of stopping Twitter. But I still want to talk to him about it because I I think he's an interesting person and not unintelligent. You know what I mean? Not, he has yeah. something to say. That's why that's that's why I'm asking because yeah. you know I think for most people who I mean for almost for we could just say 100 percent of the people who are upset by the tweets that that are coming from the White House or from the president, we don't know the people around him. And I have no idea what it would be like to have the sort of reflections that you have Mm -hmm. and then have the sort of access that you have. It feels like it would be 
You know, I'm not saying just to him, but I just well, mean I've to anybody. To the, I've been to the White House, the Trump. I know some one of his staffers I knew very well worked at Microsoft. So, and I've met like a lot of people in the administration. Um, and I do spend a lot of time talking to senators and congressmen because of all this legislation that was, was moving forward uh, to legislate some tech issues around privacy, data, all kinds of stuff. And so I've been very, uh, and I happen to be living in D.C. right now because my kids are here. Um so uh, I think that's just a different vibe, you know, is. than I'm like for, for me, this is a faceless. I mean, I, I know what his face looks like, but he's not a person to me. Right. And so are so many of the people mm-hmm. who throughout this pandemic I've disagreed with. You know, these are not people. Yeah. And I, I can well, imagine it must people, be very actually they are right, to me. That's what I mean. <laughs> you know, like they're not people that I know. They're right. uh avatars that I've seen. It's a very different Washington because there used to be a much more, even though there was partisanship, there was, you would, I started off my career, one of my, early in my career, I covered parties for the Washington Post, Washington parties. And so they would send young reporters. Mm. They said, go to this party and get some quotes from Senator Ding Dong, whoever was there. And so you would go to these parties and all these events, whatever party event or whatever. And there was tons of them all the time in Washington. Um, and it operated on a much more bipartisan basis after hours, you know what I mean? Like, and so I got a really big glimpse into how things actually happen versus right, right now where everything is out. Everything now is not done that way. There isn't that sort of uh, uh, getting together, talking to each other behind the scenes. And it's much more everything's on Twitter. And so everything has become explicit now, which makes mm-hmm. it worse because nobody can honestly have a discussion, pull someone aside and say, we have to get this done for the American people. What can you give on? What can I give on? That doesn't, that seems to be gone now. Uh, but I remember covering it at the time and I was fascinated by the behind the scenes versus the in front of the scenes. Um, they, you know, yell at each other and then behind the scenes, they'd have drinks and they'd be like, I thought they hated each other. Of course we don't. Uh-huh. Right. You know, but now Trump has made that explicit and there is there now really is a fissure between Republicans and Democrats, different people, you know, can't talk to each other anymore. Uh, and so it's become, that's why Twitter is so important is right. That is the explicit nature of what's happening. He's governing on Twitter. He's wow. campaigning on Twitter. He's communicating on Twitter. And so is everybody else. Do you feel like you can talk to people on both yes. sides or are you, are people turning you down? Oh, no, no not at all. People. No, people, do, people tend to, they're, I think they're intrigued by me. I have, a. they're like, huh, I've heard of her. Like, I'd like to, I'd like to, a lot of people sometimes are like, I'd like to go around with her. I'm like, okay. Like, you know, I can, I can beat her. I'm like, no, you can't, but all right. Um, just the other day I was with, uh, I was debating with someone on Twitter. He's his Navy SEAL. I'm going to meet him. I've decided I'm going to meet him. And we've now started to be like, he was like, he's like, you don't know anything about the military. I said, I wanted to be in the military. My dad was in the military. I would like to, I would have liked to have done it. And then he goes, well, you have cool glasses. I'm like, yeah, I do. And then it, then it was like, and now I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to meet him. I, I'm surprising. I once years ago, Two years ago, I started when Anthony Scaramucci was press secretary for a New York Minute, right? He he was offensive to me, you know, and so I started uh, scared. I said, hey, Scar-, I called, hey, Scaramucci, and I would do, I would like strafe him on Twitter, like strafe him, like, and they were funny. They were funny insults, but they were insults nonetheless. And I, I have really bad eyesight, and I was at a party in, I think it must have been in San Francisco, and this person came, come at, came at me, and it was like a blob because I didn't have my glasses on, and was doing this, you know, that's all I saw. And, and it was tiny. And I, and I was like, who who is coming at me? And it was him. And he goes, you, you're funny. You're funny. You're mean, but you're funny. And I ended up talking to him 
And then I put him on the podcast and it was great. And now he's obviously changed his tune rather uh, significantly, um, you know, in terms of being opposed to the president. But four, he was his biggest booster. So that was a weird, I was like, I can't believe one, I have Anthony Scaramucci in my podcast too. I like him kind of, even though I find some of it, some of his, what he has done loathsome. And it was really interesting. So we I ended up like talking to him. I, I know George Conway, um, you know, uh, who I think is really, he's also become opposed to the president. I just did a podcast with Joe Walsh, who used to be, uh, you know, awful, <laughs> awful. And I said yeah. that on the podcast. I'm like, I can't wait to get back to hating you. I'm really excited, like, you know, on, on real issues, on issues we can have a debate upon. Um, so I think a lot of people, yeah, they do. They, they tend to, unless they're ridiculous and hateful, and then I won't talk to them. Um, I do like to engage people in ideas. I will. I will engage a lot more people uh, in ideas than most reporters. I don't want to immediately say I won't talk to you. I think that's a very unusual position to be in right now. Well, to, as long as you somebody... give them, as long as you give them a hard time, like some of the people that come on, like uh, on some of the cable shows, they don't push back on them at all, and that that annoys me. Like they have people on, and they like Nick Mulvaney will say something loathsome, and the reporter goes, "Uh huh, uh huh," and I I'd be like, "What the fuck did you just say? I'm sorry." What do you think mo- that is? Is that like a well, corporate they constraint? Just want to, no, or no, not at all. No, lack of intellectual that. curiosity. Like, no. what, like, what stops that person? I think they just want to get them on a next time and they don't want to anger them, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. It's not corporate. It's not that. It's that they're so used to this ridiculous political game that when people start to say loathsome things, it's as if they're saying something that's just typically political. Right. I mean, that <laughs> therein lies the, the pretty interesting catch-22 of huh. an old system that used to work yes. now trying to adapt to right. completely different conditions. Which is why what Twitter did was great. It's like, stop pretending this is normal. Mm-hmm. This is loathsome. Right. And it's, it's loathsome and we have to do something. And then also have the language to talk about. It's not censorship. It is fact-checking. Like, don't let them do that. And when they say free speech, say, actually, uh, you know, the First Amendment. And then you say, no, the First Amendment doesn't say that. What it actually says, and let me read it for you, is Congress shall make no law, not Twitter shall make. Twitter can make a law. So yes. can Facebook. <laughs> Like, and then they're like, no, Absolutely. no, I have free speech in the Constitution. I said, no, you you don't actually. You, technically, Congress can't stop you. You know, there can be no laws to restrict your speech. But when you go into Disney World, you need to wear clothes. Like, you just do. N- nudity is free speech. You just can't go to, but you're, are you angry because people can't go to Disney World naked? I, I don't think you are. You know, so anyway, you just have to be able to push back on people. I think that's what a lot of our media is not used to really pushing back on people when they say outlandish things. And I think that's, it's a drip, drip, drip with twit, uh, with Trump. He first, he starts insulting Mexicans, which you're like, oh, well, you know, you don't want to say anything. And then he insults people, uh, different able people. Then he insults, you know, shithole countries. And then he insults. And so you sort of let it go and let it go and let it go. This time, it's the worst thing he ever said. Well, it isn't. Um, no, and he uses Twitter. That that's that's why where I come in, he uses Twitter as his medium for doing that because it's twitchy, it's fast, it's all id. You know, every bit of it is id, and so that is why he does so well. I mean, it certainly is an interesting time to be talking about censor. I censorship is something that has uh, wetted my whistle for a bunch yeah. of years because yeah. as a comic, sure, you know, that is the that's the. It is remarkable to watch a dude 
comics who have had a ton of success Mm -hmm. just being shitty get feedback and respond from such a place of feelings Mm -hmm. that feedback feels like censorship. It gives me a real understanding of like the white male experience because I, you know, I understand what it's like to be white. I also understand what it's like to have this haircut. I also understand what it's like to, you know, walk through the, Oh, thank you. I mean, I look amazing, but you know, (laughs) it does sometimes draw attention in a, in a different way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think to watch a, the floundering of a comic who's never been questioned mm-hmm. and and the pulling Although out of I the free think, speech narrative I, is I, I do fascinating. Think, I think comics should have a wider berth sometimes. You know what I mean? In some case, I agree with you, but I do think there's there's something in comedy and satire that deserves maybe a slightly like more tolerance. Although I, I, I get I get it's a really tough line because some of them just can be offensive. Um, I think the feedback can be say it, but you're an asshole. Like that, that's the kind of thing. And I think stopping people from saying comics from doing that, I always, I do get nervous about that, but I do think calling them out is not the same thing as uh, censoring them. I don't know that I've ever seen a comic actually be stopped from saying what they're saying, except for Kathy Griffin Mm -hmm. with the president's head. I don't think I've ever seen anybody be stopped. I think what I've seen is people get feedback or I've seen people be dropped from a paying gig, right. you know? So like this club doesn't want you because of a mm-hmm. thing you said. Mm-hmm. That to me feels like a business worrying about its bottom line. Yeah. And that is, well, how do you patrol that? You know, how do you, you say like, don't. we actually don't. have to say this business has to risk their livelihood because what he said is okay. And right. that's what I think is, is interesting well, about that topic is I've never for seen. For you guys is what, do you really need these live venues as much? I mean, look at Sarah Cooper mm. and some others. I did a podcast with Sarah Cooper two years ago and she left Google. She's actually a Google executive, which was interesting. And so that's why I did a thing on her. I'm like, wow, someone leaves Google to do comedy. Um, you know, it's a really, the what question is how do you create a career doing that? And how do you, you know, what, what happens to comedy online is really interesting. To We've me. been moving in that direction for Absolutely. such a long time, but it, it, mm-hmm. it is, but right now is very different. So, you know, 2006 YouTube and Twitter are created. And at the mm-hmm. time I was living in Chicago, I was cutting my teeth as a comic and mm-hmm. the idea that you would you know, comedy is like this merit-based thing where you're supposed to get your licks in. It's like a trade you have to learn by doing. And you have to do, you have to learn by doing the way that the men say you like, so if you're, so sometimes there'd be somebody who's like a mom, she couldn't do 27 open mics a night. She's just out of the scene. So you're supposed to, you're supposed to sacrifice everything and do the job Right. And you're supposed to also drink, you know, you're right. supposed to right. like do drugs. It's, there's a very specific path. Oh, and at the time, yeah, <laughs> at the time, if you were starting on YouTube, mm-hmm. it was, you were dismissed outright. Wow. It was like, you're not a comic, you're some other thing mm-hmm. to be ridiculed. Right. So to now see in this moment, right. somebody like Sarah Cooper be universally accepted by other comics, but also like the boys club of right. comedy is, is that's a first of its right. kind yeah. moment. That's that hasn't really I didn't happened think before. of that. And like the whole reason it works is because she's, she's Jamaican descent. She's a woman. She's expressive. I was like, there's a reason it works because it's such a wonderful juxtaposition. It's such a comedic juxtaposition between the two of them. It's, it's totally true that that's why it works. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to see people saying, yeah, this works. Yeah. That that is that is not nobody was saying that. Yeah. So well, 
you know, good for her because I think you know, we're going to see some really different stuff. The planes are covered with the bodies of pioneers, Cameron, mm-hmm. in case you're interested. <laughs> just so you know. I always well, say that to people when they're like, I was up front. I'm like, the planes were covered with the bodies of pioneers. Oh, yeah. I mean. Someone made it to California, not the not those pioneers. <laughs> some others made it in the yeah. like. Yeah. So it's interesting. It must be an interesting time to be creative. I do think, you know, we spend a lot of time insulting online stuff, but there is so much creativity, whether it's on TikTok or where there's a lot of creativity or Instagram or um, or wherever, you know, it moves from place to place. But what's really interesting is seeing people, especially cooped up, really, some of these plays they're doing, some of these scenes. Um, there is, I find it really, uh, on, the, on the positive side, really wonderful, like really entertaining, really fun and 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 people have to sort of make do, right, with what right. they got, with what they got. So yeah, it's a it's a big democratization. Like that's what mm-hmm. you know, YouTube started and Twitter started. But yeah. now because everything else is gone, mm-hmm. it does sort of democratize something that, that hasn't been that 100%. hasn't been that that hasn't been true for. Well, I want to. I'm aware of your time, and yeah. I'm aware of our time, and I want to just ask you before you go back into your day yeah. to shout out a queero. Queero, okay. Yeah, that is a. Person, place, or thing that made you feel like you can be who you are today? Uh, It's like a queer hero. Okay, queer. Does it have to be gay? No. Well, I'm trying to think. Okay, because, you know, the person who changed my life was a guy named Walt Mossberg. He's an old white guy, uh, straight guy, um, because he let me, uh, he's a reporter, he's a person at the Wall Street Journal who really gave me a break and brought me up. And I thought he was always someone uh, who really um, just changed my life. He changed my life. I don't know, but he helped me. He didn't have to. He had enormous privilege. He had enormous power. He had enormous, like, I'm an old white guy and I'm powerful. And he and he reached out and gave. And I thought that was that was a great thing. He yeah, was, I love that shout out. Yeah. Yep. That's old awesome. white guys. Can, when they're helpful, they're helpful. That's you know what? what? <laughs> if if it takes an old white, sometimes it actually takes an old white guy to do yeah. the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to think, is there anybody else? Oh, there's lots of people, you know. Sure. My baby is helping us through the pandemic because of, I have two wonderful sons. My kids, obviously, are the most important thing in my life. But I have really two great sons who are teens. Um, but we now have this this young daughter, uh, this baby, who's seven, seven and a half months old. And I have to tell you, I wrote a column about it last Sunday, and people really liked it. Um, it really did. It, it is unifying us in a way that's been through this tragedy for, for a lot of people and for all of us, for all Americans and all people all around the world. Um, globally, this is a big tragedy, the pandemic, but it's really been nice to be able to make connections with family that are stronger. Um, and in my neighborhood, what's really nice, I write about, I, I said I write about digital all the time and how digital is taking over our lives. But I have, I recently I've met my neighbors. You know what I mean? I'm hanging outside. There's nothing, there's nothing to do. Um, because a lot of the stuff that that rushes you through life, a lot a lot of which is technology oriented, is sort of on hold, and it's been uh, one of the few joys of this period of time. Yeah, I'll shout so, out neighbors. Neighbors yeah. are except neighbors. for my gay dude uh, neighbors who keep having parties until four o'clock in the morning. So what? Party it's, on! It's the end of no, the it's, it's it's insanity. <laughs> are it you one of those up. lesbians who like who like, doesn't want to party at four o'clock no, in the morning? No, no, no. But like, you go over and give them the lesbian look and everything. Like, Ab-so-fucking-lutely. I'm a humorless lesbian. Do not uh, be a humorless. You're a, hundred, a comic. You can't be a humorless lesbian. Comics are the most humorless lesbians <laughs> no. you will ever Let meet. And that, And I Come will on. stamp that I until the day. I love a partying gay guy. I love Oh, that. God. We are, Kara, I can't believe we hit the 
absolute most contentious part of the interview when it's already over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey different kind of lesbians. Yes, um, yes. I hope yeah. you have a great day. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much you for too. your time. It was really nice to talk with you.